Please turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. Long, long chapter, lots of names. Uh, before we get into that, we've seen Nehemiah so far and how he knew that he was going to need the people of God to accomplish the will of God. And so he didn't come riding in to, to Jerusalem on this white horse claiming to be the Savior. He's going to fix it all. He didn't do that at all. He identified right with the people. He said, look at how our walls are broken down. What are we going to do about it? Now, the people there could have responded any number of ways. We talked about some of those last week. But in, rea- in what happened was that they were ready to join him in the work. Glory to God. Even despite opposition that was coming and had already been there, they were ready to work. And it helps us t- see two really important things. I emphasized these last week. And they're this. Positive progression forward always comes with hard work. To see the walls built up, it was going to take hard work. But remember, the second thing is, you're not in that work alone. You're not the only one building. And in fact, if we're building with one another the way that chapter 3 really illustrates well, then God can do incredible things. Okay, now glance down through chapter 3 just for a moment before we start reading. You're going to see right away that this chapter is... Not only a list of names, there's more to it than that, but specifically there's a bunch of Hebrew names that are really hard for us to read. So this is kind of an unusual chapter for us to preach through. And there's a temptation in chapters like this or like Matthew chapter 1 or through the book of Numbers and other parts of Scripture. In fact, some other chapters in Nehemiah. There's a, te- there's a temptation here to zone out. No one else is tempted by this, are they? There's, there's, there's a temptation to just kind of let our minds drift. I took a college class and one of the, one of the classes or one session in particular was all about mind drift. And it was this college professor's plea to teenagers to not let it happen to them. I don't know if I was listening well enough, but we'll find out. We'll find out if you are listening this morning. But there's a temptation to just kind of drift and think about what we're doing later and all of these things. There's a temptation to just think that all of these weird Hebrew names are irrelevant to your life. That's a temptation. You might even start to to wonder, like, as we go through this, like, why is this even in the Bible at all? Why, Why are these lists of names here? Let me encourage you, don't do that. Okay, don't begin to zone out and possibly think that there's nothing important in this chapter. Now, I will concede the names of these people are unusual to us. You're going to hear me struggle with some of these names. Okay, I'm not as smart as you might think I am. Or maybe I'm exactly as smart as you think I am. (laughs) Don't tell me either way. James and Jasmine are going to have a baby. I don't know if they're going to name their kid Zadok or Metaliah or Hattush or a name like that that we find in this this passage. Okay, but that doesn't mean that these names are unimportant. Brooke and Jacob, I don't think there's a name here that you'll want to use for your girl. Okay, the locations of these places in Scripture, they don't hold a whole lot of weight to us in, in, in the the place of Jerusalem, 
How many of you guys have been to Israel and maybe walked these places? The Mitchells? Anybody else? So you guys might have this physical picture in your mind which would help you in this, but most of us, maybe we saw it on maps. Maybe you got a cool Bible that has a nice like image of this. Um, but most of us are kind of flying blind here. These, these, the gates, the walls, these things don't matter a whole lot to us, but don't think that they're unimportant. Okay, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to communicate to you guys today. You're gonna to notice too as we read, there's a couple of words repeated over and over again. Built, rebuilt, repaired, worked, restored. These are the dominant action verbs of this chapter. You're, we're not gonna read about anybody preaching in chapter three. Nobody stands up to teach. In chapter 3. Now it happens later in the book of Nehemiah. But in chapter 3 nobody does those things. This reminds us. That these were real locations. And real people. Who actually really worked. At what God had told them to do. Now we also don't find anybody complaining about the work. In this chapter. Though we do find a group of people. Who refuse to be a part of it. Which we'll talk about. But this chapter talks at length about, about work and how it's important work. And as much as Nehemiah mentions the work of rebuilding certain parts of the walls of Jerusalem, the emphasis is equally on the people who did the work. And that's why the kids said their names and then jumped into the work this morning. So because of the kind of unusual nature of this chapter, we're going to go through it a little bit different than normally. I'm not, I'm going to spare you from just me reading 32 verses of, of names and we're just going to kind of take it chunk by chunk. So a couple of sections at a time and go through it that way. Okay. And I'll stop at the end of those sections and kind of review some of the important details that we come across in what we just read. And then at the end, hopefully I'll call our minds back to this big principle that runs from the, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, even to today. So let's pray. And then we're going to start reading in chapter three, verse one. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I ask as we look at your word today, this is your word. This is what Jesus said sustains us more than even bread, physical bread alone. We're sustained by every word that comes from your mouth. And and these verses, 32 verses in Nehemiah 3, are part of the words that sustain us. They're part of the words that encourage us and are effective in our lives for teaching and rebuking. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, not let our minds drift, to not begin to be tempted to think that these verses are unimportant, but instead, Lord, I pray that you would reveal really incredible things to us. Remind us of some of these principles from your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's let's look at verses 1 through 5 together. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Henel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hanassah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars." And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. 
And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Berechai, son of Meshesabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Let's pause there for just a moment. This chapter starts with the high priest, Eliashib. Okay, him leading other priests and they rebuild the sheep gate. The sheep gate was likely near to the temple. Um, just simply because that's probably the gate that they, people would have brought their sheep in from the fields to either sell them at market or to take them to the temple for sacrifice. This is probably why the priests worked on it because it was close to them, close to where they stayed and where they worked. Now, I think it's significant that this is what was rebuilt first. Okay, this is the first thing that's listed as being rebuilt. This is Nehemiah's first checkbox on the list. Do this first. And I think it's important because it's, it's as if they were saying, this and everything that follows it is special to the Lord. See how it says that they consecrated it and beyond? Every, this and everything that followed was special to the Lord because he's called us to do this work. So Nehemiah... And Eliashib knew that God wanted everything set apart to him, set apart special to him. And that would include the walls, that would include the gates, everything here. And by effect, it would include the very people who were doing these things, the people who that city contained. These were things that were made special to God, and the people were special to him too. Now, something else to notice here, I just want to point out, is that the town's spiritual leader was the first one to get his hands dirty. Now, Eliashib doesn't do everything perfect. We'll find out later in like chapter 13, he kind of messes up. But here, he's getting his hands dirty. He's jumping in and he starts the work. I think this is important because Eliashib was acting like a godly leader should. He was out in front of the work. Doing it. He's not sitting back telling people what to do, although there's a time for that. But he was here joining in and leading the work. He was the first one to get his hands dirty. He wasn't too spiritual for work rebuilding a wall. Have any of you guys ever worked alongside Ramsey Creek's spiritual leaders? Jason, Mike, Caleb. These are some of the hardest workers you're going to find. Our deacons, Rusty, James, Niffin, the Mitchell men, Brock and Kurt, these are hard workers. I'm, I'm so grateful that God has given them to lead our church because they work hard in all that they do. We're blessed to have godly men leading the way and working hard. And really this applies to all areas of our life, doesn't it? As far as leadership goes. So you might be a teacher. You might be a police officer, a politician, a boss, a parent, maybe a pastor. And we should all be reminded that others are looking to us for an example of how to behave, of how to live. So if we're slow to jump into the work, people that are watching us are probably going to be slow to jump into work too. And if we're full of discouragement and doubt, then others will follow suit in that way too. And so I think there's a good reason why Eliashib was the first one mentioned here and why the rest of the chapter is filled with like over 50 names of people that followed their good example. 
Praise the Lord for godly leaders. So next to him, next to Eliashib, um, the men of Jericho built, it says. And next to them, Zakur built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. Merimoth, Meshalem, Zadok repaired the walls. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But notice what is said about them. But their nobles, the Tekoite nobles, would not stoop to serve their Lord. Okay, so we find a good example in Eliashib. And here in the nobles from this city, we find the opposite, don't we? We find a really bad example. Where Eliashib was a, was a good, hard-working leader, the nobles of this city thought they were above the hard work. What this means in the Hebrew is that when it says that they wouldn't stoop to serve their lords, it means that they wouldn't submit. They wouldn't, uh, the, the literal Hebrew word is they wouldn't bend their necks in submission to what the Lord was calling them to do through Nehemiah. So we don't know why exactly this might be. Maybe they just resented Nehemiah's leadership. He comes in from out of town and all of a sudden has everybody on his side. Maybe they resented that. Maybe they just didn't like Nehemiah's plan. Maybe they thought they had a better one. Whatever the reason, they're the only group called out for not joining in the work. Can you imagine that being your family legacy? To be the only group pointed out to not join in, to not do it. In the inspired words of the Lord, in Nehemiah, you're the only one in the city who refused to work. I, I hope it goes without saying, but I'll say it just to be clear. Don't do that. <laughs> don't be like that. When God is obviously calling you to a work, don't refuse to submit to him. Be like the common people. The whole city wasn't like this. Just the nobles, just the uppity-ups. The, the regular, common, hard-working, everyday people did it. They jumped in. They joined the work. And you know what's really wild about this? We find out later in the chapter, you can peek ahead at verse 27. These town folk, even without their leaders leading them, went above and beyond. They finished their work here in the first few verses. And then we find out later, they did even more. Without good leadership, they still did even more. So that just led me to think this week, you know what, if your leaders are following the Lord and working hard, jump in and do the work with them. It's good and praise the Lord that you've got leaders like that. But even if a leader stinks and leads poorly, you can still do what's right and accomplish great things by submitting to the Lord yourself. You don't need any earthly leader's permission to do what's right and to do what God has called you to do. But praise God for the hardworking leaders who, who blaze the trail forward in front of us. Now let's read verses 6 through 12. Joida, the son of Pesay, and Meshalem, the son of Besoda, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Usiel, the son of Harnea, goldsmiths repaired. 
Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jeddah, the son of Haram, Haramuth, repaired the opposite house. If I just say them convincingly enough, it sounds like it's right, right? Okay. Middle of verse 10. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashebneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashbub, Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Haloesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Let's stop there just to give me a break. <laughs> so these verses, they, they tell us of all of these, these guys. Um, men like Joada, another name, another guy named uh, Meshalem, who repaired. Next to them, you've got Melatiah, Jadon, the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah. Next to them worked Usiel, one of the goldsmiths, and Hananiah, one of the perfumers. So did you hear that? This is a big list of names of really hard to read, but don't miss the details. Did you hear what we just read? A goldsmith, a perfumer, okay? These men are not professional builders, these men were goldsmiths and perfumers. They were not trained for the work of building a wall. Now, I don't know the background of these people or any, really anybody else on this project to, to a big degree, but I don't, I don't see anywhere in chapter three where a professional carpenter or builder is mentioned. You've got normal people, townsfolk. Even when their leaders wouldn't join them. You've got people who are working with, used to working with metal, gold. You've got perfumers. But did that stop them from jumping in to the work? Now they could have maybe legitimately said, hang on a second, I'm, I'm not trained for this. Let's just, you know, gather some money and send some people off and get them trained and then they can come back and lead this project. It's not what they said. It's not what they did. They didn't ask for an exemption because they didn't know how to do this work. Verses 9 and 12 tell us that Rephaiah and Shalom were men who each ruled half the district of Jerusalem. You know who this is? These are politicians. Maybe that's a too broad of a word here to use, but these are politicians they ruled half the district, and they are working on their section of the walls. They are jumping in and getting their hands dirty. Their city leaders, again, not probably trained carpenters or builders, got in there and worked right alongside their neighbors. This is pretty cool. Look at verse 12. Not only was this man a politician, but who did Shalom bring to help with the project? His daughters. Now, I don't know how old they are. Surely they would have had to be of age enough to do some work and to help. But he brought his daughters. Certainly some who would not be trained at construction and that sort of a thing. But it tells us some really important, valuable information about what it looks like to serve the Lord, doesn't it? 
Serving the Lord can be a whole family event. And for the most part, it ought to be. And that's one of the reasons why we encourage in the summertime a a family mission trip where we encourage families to go and to work together on things because we see that principle even here. Everyone who could help did help in the repairs, even the daughters. No professional carpenters listed that we can see. But instead we have priests, goldsmiths, perfumers, politicians, everyday Joes, and whole families who are willing and ready to work. I just find this really incredible. Before we move to the next section, though, I want to point one more thing out in verse 11. A particular person, Malkijah. Now, there are, I think, three Malkijahs mentioned in this chapter. They're all different. Just, you know, it's like the name John, I guess, Malkijah. And, but this one in particular, we know that he is the son, in verse 11, he is the son of Haram and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab. Okay, why is this significant? Well, remember, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, these are all very similar time frames and regions. And in the book of Ezra, this guy is mentioned. If you want to flip back there, you can. Ezra, it's just the previous book. Ezra chapter 10, verse 11. So in Nehemiah 3, 11, we see this guy mentioned. And in Ezra chapter 10, 11, we see this guy Mentioned again, but it's not a positive thing in Ezra. In the, in chapter 10, you've got the people confessing sin, repenting of their sin. And this leads to many men who had sinfully intermarried with people outside of Israel to repent and begin leading a new life apart from them. Look at chapter 10, verse 11 of Ezra. Malkijah is listed as one of these men, and it's the same guy because it gives his lineage. You can see that there in in chapter 10, verse 11. Now go back to Nehemiah, chapter 3. Am I in the right spot? I see some glances. Not chapter 10, verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 25. Okay, thank you. I might have those backwards. Chapter 10, verse 25, we've got this list of all of those who are guilty of this sin, of marrying outside of the people. And Malkijah is mentioned. He's mentioned in more detail. I'll find it and update you guys next week. But he's mentioned there for being one who intermarried with people. That was, we talked about this weeks ago in um, Malachi. This was a big deal. We said, don't do this. And part of the reason why was because it would... It would cause the, the men of Israel to be attached with women of other countries who worshiped, worshiped other gods and it would lead them astray. And if you know Israelite history, that's exactly what happened. And so Ezra is reading the book of the law and these people are confessing sin and it's listed that Malkijah is one of them. Specifically this one, this Malkijah. And it says that He was guilty of this sin. Well, now we see in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 11, we see now he's listed as one who is joyfully or at least joining in the work. And it would seem to me that we find him obedient to the Lord here, apparently serving him the right way. 
I think that this should teach us and show us that we shouldn't let a past failure stop us from serving the Lord now, today. There's not a, a person in this room who hasn't blown it, who hasn't messed up. Some bigger than others, each of those carry weighted consequences accordingly. And yet, what does this show us? Don't let those past failures stop you from serving the Lord today. And Melchizedek, I think, is a good example of that. We, we need to repent, make things right, and then serve the Lord however we can now, like these were doing. Let's move on. Chapter 13. We're going to read a little bigger section in Nehemiah. Chapter 13. I'm sorry. Chapter 3, verse 13 through 27. Henan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Shalom, the son of Kalhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. Verse 17. After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Rashabiah, the ruler of half the district of Kelah, repaired for his district. And after him, their brothers repaired. Bavi, the son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent of the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Neb- Zabai repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. Verse 22, after him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired their opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benu, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzzah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Peda, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to the point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Okay, we'll pause there again. Now, I'm not going to go back and try to read all of those. I saw Benjamin's name in there. That was a reprieve, right? Um, I won't go through all of their names again. But I just I want to point out once more, these are real people. Just like these, these little ones are saying their name, adding to the wall, are real folks that you know. 
these people in names I have a hard time pronouncing were real people that people knew. They really existed. And so it's good that they worked together. And that's what we see a lot of in this chapter, right? That long section we just read, after him, next to him, along with, beside. These are all of these words that are illustrating this truth that they worked together. They did something together that they could never do all on their own. Look at verse 13 again. Hanun and the people of Zeno repaired the valley gate and then rebuilt a thousand cubits of the wall. Who knows what a cubit is? Okay, it's kind of this measurement, right? From elbow to to, to finger. It's about 18 inches is kind of the, the figure that we would use. Thousand cubits is what these guys repaired. So do the conversion. It took me a while. I did it this week. 1,500 feet of fortifying wall in their area. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. I get it. But for reference, from the back wall here to the double doors is just under 70 feet. So these these folks repaired in just a matter of a short time, they repaired basically 20, 21 lengths of this room together. Now, that's pretty cool, and it sounds a little impressive, but archaeologists have uncovered some of these walls in Jerusalem, and most of these walls were at least 10 feet tall. Some of them were over 20 feet thick, and that's not including the buttress area that were supporting these walls. Uh, Nehemiah mentions in chapter 12 that that big groups of people, like the choir, walks on the walls, on top of the walls. So they had to be pretty wide. So now think about that. 21 of these rooms, maybe 20 feet wide and 10 feet tall. And who was doing the work? A bunch of families. A bunch of goldsmiths and perfumers and politicians doing the work. These are really hard workers. Look at verse 16. Uh, there's another mention, there's a name of Nehemiah. This is not the Nehemiah at the beginning. Verse 1, uh, who wrote this book says, this Nehemiah was son of Hakaliah. The one here in verse 16 is the son of Beth Zur, so not the same guy, different guy named Nehemiah. 17, and following, almost through the end of the chapter, just look how they're arranged. After Nehemiah repaired, Rehem repaired. Next to Rehem, Hashabiah. Next to Hashabiah, Ezer repaired. On and on the list goes, and it's all of these men bringing their families to work right next to each other. Often doing the work of rebuilding the wall right by their house. Now there was wisdom in Nehemiah's leadership in having them build right next to their house. There's just logistical value to that, right? There wasn't wasted time in carrying stuff long distances. They just went straight there. They did the work and they worked right next to their neighbors. The priests are getting in there. The spiritual leaders are getting in there. The servants from the temple are working hard. Families are getting together and doing the work. There's a group of goldsmiths who are pitching in. A group of merchants, people that their profession wasn't building. It was trading of goods and stuff like that. And all of these people are motivated to do the work that God had called them to do through Nehemiah. 
And when you look at it through the lens that we've looked at it, this is a really cool chapter. We see real people doing real work. Now, I want to make a couple of observations as we consider the big picture of Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, I think that there is also a big principle that we can trace through here. First thing that I want to point out is this. There is a, a definite family aspect to this chapter that we shouldn't miss. I've mentioned it a lot. These people built together and almost everyone listed, it tells you who their father was, right? They were the son of this person who was the son of this person. And it just goes to show that in the family of God, we're all connected. Connected. Whether you want to be or not, you are connected to God's people. And not only that, but you've got families that are working hard together. They were reflecting their family's name and how they worked, weren't they? Because we found one group of people, not a family, but a, a group of nobles from a town that didn't want to work. And they're recorded for all of history too, but we've got good families who are working together. Parents are working right alongside of their sons and daughters. Families working together with other families, people from all professions and walks of life, working together towards a common goal. So this leads us to do some reflection here as moms and dads, maybe grandmas and grandpas. Maybe if you're a teacher or leading other things, are you modeling a good work ethic for those around you. Mom and dad, are you work, are you modeling that? Sunday school teacher, are you modeling a biblical work ethic for the kids in your class? Kids almost always learn work ethic from their parents, whether it's good or bad, right? Now, it doesn't always apply. You can always improve. You can always trust the Lord. But man, kids, are you, are you paying attention? Like right now, are you paying attention to me? Are you paying attention to your parents? Yeah, thank you, son. Are you paying attention to when your parents are working? When it's time to work, are you, are you watching how they work? Moms and dads, do you want them to watch how you work? You should. Kids, you should watch mom and dad and how they work. And if kids, if you have hardworking parents, rejoice take pride in that not ungodly pride but that's that's your family name that you can carry on in how you work so be glad if you have hard-working parents families are we working together or is that a kid job or is this an adult job are we working together because we're all connected in this work we don't do it alone. Remember, that was one of the, the principles at the beginning that I mentioned. It's hard work to make positive progress forward, but you're not in the work alone. Second big thing is that there is a unified effort of God's people in this chapter. It was a good thing for God's people to work together. Surely it must have pleased the Lord to watch this taking place. Now, we also might understand that sometimes we're put in situations where we have to work together to do what God has called us to do. God has a purpose in those moments as well. Some of us lead, some of us follow, but all of us work, right? And we are called to work together. 
If a man and his family, think about it, would refuse to work or would be lazy or would only do, you know, shoddy work on their part of the wall, well, what would happen? It might fall. And that point in the wall would be a point of access for enemies, wouldn't it? And so it would give a family a sense of responsibility and accountability to do the work on their section of the wall and to build it up. But there's a cool thing here that you might have missed in chapter 3. When one group of people, this happens several times, when one group of people, like the people from that town with bad leaders, when they got finished with their primary job, what did they do? They didn't get out the lawn chair, prop their feet up, and grab an iced tea. If they did, they didn't do it for long. Because they saw another part, another family that needed help, another area that needed work, and they went and they did it. They, they worked in other areas after their primary one was done. I think this is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ at work. Chapter 3 of Nehemiah is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ at work. We don't all have the same gifts and abilities, right? Some were goldsmiths, some were perfumers, some were politicians, some were just everyday Joes. We don't all have the same gifts and abilities even here and now. But when we use them together for the purposes of God, great things happen. Incredible things can happen even. So consider these questions as we apply this to our own life today. Are you obeying God and what he's calling you to do? Or like the nobles of that town, maybe you think you have a better plan. Are you joining with other believers in the work of the kingdom? Or would you rather go do your own thing? Are you working hard at what God has given you to do? Or have maybe you become to get a little lazy? We learned so much from this chapter about how the people of God should live, how the people of God should work. Their job was to be, rebuild the walls. Much of Nehemiah's story focuses on the walls. But if you fast forward to the New Testament, and this is that theme that we see, we fast forward to the New Testament, we find out something different happening to walls, don't we? Because we find out that Jesus didn't come to build walls. He came to tear them down. He's come to tear down the wall between the sinner and God. And he's done it by becoming the perfect sacrifice that each one of us desperately needs. Think about Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14. They tell us that Jesus has broken down the wall by taking our sin. It says our record of debt and he canceled it. And what does he do with it? He nails it to the cross. He's breaking down walls. We know he's done it. Because the physical tearing of the dividing curtain in the temple at his death, you remember that story? What happened there? When he breathed his last, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. This was a physical demonstration of what actually happened in the heavens. The dividing wall between the high priest and God, between man and God, was gone. In Jesus, it's been broken down so that anyone who believes has direct access to the Father. Glory to God. 
He's come to tear down the dividing wall between the sinner and God, but he's also come to tear down the dividing walls between one another. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. It tells us that he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between people in the flesh and then reconciled us to God in one body through the cross. He's reconciled us through his flesh and through the cross. So that means he's done it by saving men and by saving women from all walks of life. Rich people, poor people, educated people, non-educated people, Gentile, Jew, who we might think are important and who we might think are not important. Jesus has come to break down the walls between us. Walls were an extremely important part of life in the Old Testament, as we see from Nehemiah. Nehemiah's charge was to build them well together. I think it's interesting that Christians in the New Testament are referred to as a foundation, as living stones, Peter says. And we are being built into this foundational wall with Christ as the cornerstone. But when walls get put up where they don't belong, Jesus smashes them down. He tears them down. And we've seen that all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament. If there's a spiritual wall between you and the Lord today, I want you to know it's not a wall that God has put there. Because he's taken them down through Christ. Christ has come to set you free. Jesus has crushed the dividing wall between sinful man and a holy God. And he's demolished the wall between one another as well. Join God in the work of building his spiritual kingdom. That's what we're called to do as laborers in his kingdom. Build it alongside of him. Not walls that keep us from God or keep us from one another. But what he's calling us to do. Sometimes he calls us to physical work in the process. Sometimes you're going to go and cut somebody's yard or clean their house or cook them a meal. Or trim their trees or whatever needs to be done. Sometimes there's physical work in building the kingdom of God. A lot of times there's spiritual work. And Nehemiah has illustrated that wonderfully. And how he always goes to prayer first. Before this plan was ever set in motion, where all these families are told, you go build here, you do this, you do this, started with prayer. And so if the Lord is is stirring in your heart to something that he's calling you to do, start with prayer. Today, maybe even as we sing our final song together, ask the Lord, God, what would you have me to do with this? I feel you giving me this burden to do something. What would you have me do? And brothers and sisters, if there's a wall between you and another, take this time of reflection and knock it down. Go to them. Love one another. And remember too, there's no wall between you and the Lord that he's put there. He's taken them all down in Christ. Turn to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in our study of this wall building, we're still reminded that Jesus has come to set captives free. To to tear down the walls in his flesh, with his body, on the tree, on the cross. He has removed and broken down any barrier that there would be between the sinner and the Lord.
Lord, that is a work that had to happen for us to be able to come to you by faith. And we thank you that it has happened. And so now I pray as we reflect on these things, as we sing and worship, Lord, I pray that we would look to the right and to the left, see our brothers and sisters and their families, and that we'd be encouraged that we're not doing this alone. And I pray this week that that would come out in how we love one another. Thank you for the love that's here between brother and sister. I pray that it would increase, Lord, all the more as the day approaches. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.